Stranger Things. Does anybody watch the show Stranger Things? Did you ever see that? You don't have to admit it here. It's totally private. Uh, would, you, would you like to hear about a strange thing? Yeah, I, I'm often interested in the strange things of the odd. I was a big fan of the X-Files. I watched Stranger Things. And this is one strange thing about God. Okay, I don't know if you've ever thought about this or anything like this, but why in the world do we have to believe in God? Why can't, we, why can't we just know? Why does there need to be any doubt? Why is there ever even a question? I've never had to take my marriage by faith to say, oh, I, I believe I'm married. I believe I'm married. We, we don't do this with our kids. You know, like, I believe they're my kids. I, I believe they're my kids. So why? In something that is so extraordinarily important, like God, do we have to have faith? Why is it so difficult to believe? Shouldn't we just know? Shouldn't there just never be any doubt ever? And some of us have extraordinary faith. Some of us have mild faith. Some of us are trying to regain our faith. Some of us think that it's not even possible to ever have faith. But here's a cool fact, okay? Together, we are here, all together, right, today. Regardless of what you believe, we are all traveling at 107.8 thousand kilometers per hour around the sun. There's not even a breeze. Uh, not only are we all traveling at about 108,000 kilometers per hour around the sun, we've been doing this every day for our whole life. And as you may know, we live in a very special zone. The zone that we live in is called the Goldilocks zone. And that means that the Earth is the exact right distance from the sun so that we don't burn up or freeze. Not too hot, not too cold, it's just right. Yeah, that's the Goldilocks zone. That's where we are. And so that is all going on while we continue to struggle on whether or not to believe in a personal God. So that's where I want to go. Let's begin that conversation. Who should be deconverting? Do we really need God? Is there a God that exists whether we want one or not? Some of us say yes, but we don't always live like it, though. Some of us say no, but we find it really hard to fully dismiss God. People ask now in our culture, do we even need God anymore? Have we not advanced as a society? And the more recent addition to that conversation has become, who needs religion? And most Western culture folks, Canada included, are giving up or backing away from religion. And the reason that we're pulling away from religion and pulling away from God isn't because atheism became all that attractive. It's just that religion is less attractive. More and more of the people within the wealthy Western nations are saying religion is actually the problem. We were brought up to believe that religion has the answers, that religion is the solution. But more and more, as we look around at the world that we live in, we see what's going on, we say, no, no, religion is the problem. Right after 9-11, the, uh, the big attacks, 
church attendance spiked. Church attendance in the U.S. Uh, at least certainly spiked for about three weeks. Then it went back to normal. And then something else began to happen that perhaps you weren't aware of, but you have definitely been affected by. There began a surge, a movement of anti-religious feeling. Not just one religion, but all religions. Immediately following 9-11, a neuroscientist named Sam Harris began writing a book that would eventually get published called The End of Faith. And the subtitle is really catchy too. It says, uh, Religion, Terror, and the End of Reason. This was a scathing critique, not of Islam, but of all religion. Now, regardless of how you feel about that, that book spent 33 weeks on the New York Times best-selling, bestsellers list. Between this book and then his follow-up based on the response to that book, this one was called Letters to a Christian Nation, he basically says to Christians, comes front and center and says, you're the problem. It was in that same year, uh, when that book came out, that Richard Dawkins published his now famous book, The God Delusion. In the opening section of this book, Richard Dawkins tells us exactly why he's writing his book. This was not simply a book about atheism. This was a book specifically targeting religion. And here's what he said. If this book works as I intend, religious readers will open it, who open it will be atheists when they put it down. Over 3 million people purchased this book in 35 different languages. The year after The God Delusion came out, journalist Christopher Hitchens published his book, God is Not Great. His subtitle, How Religion Has Poisoned Everything. This was an attack on all religion. It is really not an argument for atheism as much as it was to say religion is the problem. Not a specific religion. They're all the same. They are all the problem. So these guys became the new bad boys. They were like rock stars. They got invited to uh, the late night TV spots. They did all the, all the, the couch sitting there. They got uh, invited to college campuses. They're special speakers that came in. They became YouTube sensations. Um, their debates have been watched over and over and over again. And together, collectively, they have sold millions upon millions of books. And while there has not been a surge in atheism, a significant percentage of people continued what had already begun, but it was now picking up speed. A significant number of people began to disconnect with all religion. So many people have been disconnecting from religion. They've been deconverting from, from following God, deconverting from Christianity, de deconverting from all the different faiths, that there's actually a name now for this group. Perhaps you've already heard of this, and it shows up on political forums sometimes, census kind of stuff. Um, the term for these folks is the nuns. Now, if you're going to use the term, it's really important that you spell it right, okay? So spell check that when you're doing it. These nuns are non-affiliated. They are non-affiliated. Typically, the group's about 35, it's about 35% of millennials. It's mostly male. It's uh, mostly left-leaning politically, and it's theologically agnostic, or perhaps more accurately, theologically apathetic. They don't know. 
They're not interested in knowing. They don't care. Uh, the avenue of thought, not even worth caring about. They don't need God. They don't need religion. And they would probably say, you know, we're not hostile toward religion, but we are not affiliated with it. Don't ask us any deep questions, okay? Don't ask us to, the, the thought process that we got to get here on. Don't ask us the hard questions. We're still working it out for now. This, this, this is not some new philosophical thing that we've latched onto. We haven't bought into that. We're just done, right? We're just done with religion. We're just done with the church. We're done with what they say. We're done with the God that we were um, presented with as children. We're just done. The nuns are done. Had enough. It's not that we find atheism all that attractive, it's just that we have lost our interest in religion. We find that religion and God that we have been presented with is just so extraordinarily unattractive. Now obviously, I can't speak for all religions, and I probably can't even speak for all of Christianity, but in my opinion, in my opinion, the migration away from Christianity that the nuns have done, they've been migrating away. I'll just talk about Christianity. The, my, the nuns that have migrated away from Christianity, we're talking millions of people. The Christians that have migrated into the nun category, it's the church's fault. It's people who do what I do. Uh, it's our fault. Because when you open the pages of the Gospels, the four accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when you read the account of Jesus and you look at his interacting with people, here's something that's absolutely unmissable. It's from the beginning all the way to the end. People who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus. The person Jesus. Not just the miracle worker or the teacher that was blowing people's minds. There was something about Jesus that was attractive. People who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus. And Jesus liked them back. And the church is supposedly the body of Jesus. So if Christianity is not compelling, if Christianity is just so easy to slip away from, well, then it is, I'm convinced, because we have the wrong version. And the thing that convinces me of that, more than anything else, are the deconversion stories that I hear, that I read, that I watch, that I'm told. The duns, the nuns. And sometimes the story exists because there was an, there was an instant tragedy. It just sort of happened, boom, in that moment. Sometimes it's more of a process, moving on. Sometimes it's because of a book that somebody read. Sometimes it's because people went away to university or college and they were exposed to something that they had never heard before. Sometimes it's because they got into a new group of friends. But here's the thing that's remarkable. I have never yet heard of a story where somebody who explained the reason for their deconversion from Christianity that had anything to do with Christianity. I've heard a lot of stories uh, but as I listen to these stories, it breaks my heart. These are stories of people migrating away from God, away from faith and Christianity specifically. And I, and I hear the story and I say, wait a minute. Hold on a second. I don't believe in that God either. 
That's, that's not even true. And the original first century Christianity never embraced the ideas that you have found so offensive. And much that you want to walk away from are things that the Christian church, the Christian faith, should have walked away from a long time ago. So I want to try and correct that. When you say that's kind of bold, right? Maybe, maybe bold's not the right word. Maybe arrogant is more the word. And I don't want it to be that way, but this is the world that I want to live in. Uh, th- this is the, church that I, the kind of church that I want to invest in where we get Christianity right. Where we become like Jesus and people like us and we like them. So for the rest of this month and March as well, that's what I want to address. And that's where I'm going. So if you want to map it out, that's what I'm going to try and do. And so this is going to feel a little bit different than stuff that we have done in the past. So the goal is for this whole thing to be a conversation. So the different weeks, they're not really about just themselves. They're about being part of a whole package. They they don't stand alone necessarily just by themselves. Um, So today I want to start, and I want to start by going way out into the conversation, way over to the edge. And I would like to begin with an update for you on atheism. The reason that I want to do this is not because so many people have checked the atheist box, not because so many people are clamoring to become atheists, how do I get in? But because so many people have stepped towards that line. Because when you step away from faith, when you step away from God, you're stepping away from faith. People do this all the time without considering what it is that you're stepping towards. And oftentimes people find themselves in a situation that they never ever meant to find themselves in because you cannot, you cannot move away from something without moving toward something else. The good news is this. The new atheists, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, and others, these new atheists have written these best-selling books, popular articles, lots of debate, and they have essentially updated us on what it means to be an atheist, on what atheism is. And so what they remind us of is that if you understand, um, and especially if you would consider yourself and none. Here's what I want you to understand. Here's, here's what they want you to understand. Atheism is not simply the disbelief in God. That's not the whole story. Atheism is a complex belief system that logically leads to some unsettling conclusions. Now, unsettling is not a truth test. Unsettling is not a truth test. In other words, something can be unsettling and true at the same time. For example, your teenage daughter's boyfriend. Right? It's true, but it's also unsettling. Right? Something can be absolutely true and absolutely unsettling at the same time. And here's why that's important. Many people, and perhaps you, perhaps someone listening right now, have stepped away from Christianity because of something that they found unsettling about the results of Christianity, something about the unsettling consequences of Christianity, of the Christian faith. But unsettling is not a truth test. And so that cuts both ways. Because some of the things that we're going to talk about today about atheism, today they're going to bring that back up as well. But this today is not an argument against atheism. My goal today is not to convince you that atheism is wrong at all. 
I simply want to update you on what it means to be an atheist in the 21st century. So I want to prod your thinking today and make you, help you think today at all just a little bit because you cannot step away from something without stepping towards something else. So today is not an argument for Christianity and next week isn't either. Today is not an argument against atheism and it's not an argument for God. Today is just helping us to understand more clearly the options. If you choose to give up on religion, if you choose to give up on God entirely, well then this is the alternative. So quickly, I want to give you the six tenets of atheism. And if you're considering it, um, if you've lost interest in religion, if you've lost interest in God, you've lost interest in the whole package, I don't know what to do with it, how come this, and what about that, and if you were thinking that you really do agree with Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris that religion is the problem, today I want to explore what it means to adopt atheism. There are six things, and three of them might be new, newer, and three of them are all things that we, that we would have grown up with. Okay, so they're not, not new in that way. So the first one is this. It's the illusion of mind. If there is no God, there is no you in there. The whole idea of the mind, it's not about the brain, it's not about intelligence. It's the idea that the mind kind of sits on top of everything, overlooking everything. In a world that is limited to biology, chemistry, and physics, there is no place for, there is no room for the mind. So Christopher Hitchens wrote a book. It's called Mortality. Uh, he passed away in 2011. Um, he died of pneumonia that he contracted while he was suffering from esophageal cancer. Um, and when he realized that this disease was going to be a death sentence, he decided that, what, what a great opportunity, why don't I chronicle this entire experience and write a book about it? So in the book, he has regular conversations with doctors, as you might expect. They, uh, it comes back and forth all the time. And the doctors would say things to him like, Christopher, your body is fighting. Or your body is rejecting. Uh, your, your body is trying. Your body is reacting to. And they continue to speak of his body to the man. And then the man finally responded back to the doctors, I don't have a body. I am a body. Just think about that for a moment. Think of all the differences that makes to your worldview. If there is no God, if chemistry uh, in biology and, and, and driven by the laws of physics, if that's everything, then that's true. There's, there's no Graham. There's just a body. There's no personality, there's no identity. It's just the biological me. What would it look like to live like that? The people you love, just bodies. The whole idea of mind, that there is something beyond our body, is just so ingrained into our experience. But if there is no God, then there is no you. There is just biology. And that may be true. That is just one of the uncomfortable conclusions that you have to embrace if you decide there is no God. Number two, the second one, the illusion of free will. 
And this might be a new one for you. In a world that is governed by the laws of physics, there is no room for free will. Everything is determined. You may have experienced choosing who you married, but that was determined. Every decision you make is determined. The idea of free will just does not jive with a universe that is driven and controlled by the laws of physics. There is no free will. Sam Harris has been quoted. He said, I'm, I'm, I'm bothered by being misquoted and taken out of context, but I can't really be mad at my critics because they have no choice. Because there is no freedom. There is no free will. Because everything is determined. Every decision you have ever made is an illusion. Super brilliant guy, you've probably heard of him, Stephen Hawking, right? You know Stephen Hawking? Believes in determinism. But because it's determined, it doesn't matter. He's a believer in no free will. And so jokingly, he wrote in one of his books, I have noticed that even people who claim that everything is predestined and that we can do nothing to change it, look before they cross the road. That's a joke. Ha <laughs> ha. All right. Once again, we bump into something here that may be true. I'm not going to argue with that today. It may be true. But when it comes down to that notion, it's just unlivable. You, you cannot live as if you're just biology. Try it. You try it, and some other biology is going to come to your biology, lock your biology up, and take away from you the freedom that you never had. That's another joke. <laughs> it is an, an unlivable reality. You can't do it, but that doesn't mean that it's not true. It's a logical consequence of becoming an atheist. Third one, the illusion of value. If I brought in a box, I carried it in here and I set it down and say, hey, I've got a box full of value, right? That box would be empty. We all believe that value is a thing. We all exercise and we all leverage the concept of value all the time. Financial value, the value of people, the value of work. But value is not a scientifically proven fact. It's not plausible or maybe even possible in a world that's governed just by physics. Value is something that we refer to and we imply and in almost every conversation that we have, including this conversation. But it is an illusion. There is no actual value. There is only ascribed value. And this is a really, really big deal when it comes to justice. Because it means that just is just what we want it to be. In a world where there is no God, there's just physics, chemistry, and biology, there is no actual justice. The moment that we reach outside of our biology and try to hold another biology outside of us accountable, we, we, we point to this invisible thing that you can't put in a box, you have appealed to justice. But it is an illusion. There is no actual difference between plugging a lamp into an outlet and rape. Just is just what we want it to be. We see increasing wrestling 
with this concept in our social fabric. It comes up in the media all the time. It's not uncommon now to hear people speak of truth in this way. They say, you have your truth and I have my truth. It's time for you to speak your truth. You leave my truth alone. Perhaps I'll leave your truth alone. And for people, they, they seem to believe that that can work when it comes to truth. And it might, as long as you're alone. It does not work when it comes to justice. You will never, ever, ever hear anyone saying, saying, I have my justice. You have your justice. Don't try to impose your justice on me. And I would never impose my justice on you. When it comes to truth, I can have my truth and you can have your truth. When it comes to justice, I want you to be accountable to my sense of justice. But when you extract theism, but when, when, when you take God out of it, when you remove God, all we're left with is biology, physics, and chemistry. And that sense of value, the sense of ought, the sense of ought not, it all goes away. There's no such thing as value. And that may be true. But you can't live that way. As soon as you begin to argue or to try to convince somebody, you begin to appeal to this thing, this invisible thing that you can't put in a box. But for us, it's so real that we can't even have a conversation without referring to it. Those are the first three. Those are the ones that might be newer atheism. The next three are the ones that we all kind of grew up with. They are the, the old ones. So the, the, the first ones, um, they might be the more advanced tenets. What we're going to do now is the more basic tenets. And you're going, good, we're going to make it easier. Uh, number four, something came from no thing. And here's the big mystery. What happened before the Big Bang? You can't say what happened before the Big Bang because Nothing happened. You can't say before, because before is a time term. But time didn't exist. When the Big Bang happened, suddenly there was time, there was matter, and there was space. And also, at that moment, all of the laws of physics, all of the laws of nature that govern all of what we're talking about came into being at that moment. Richard Dawkins admits this. He tells us this is sort of what's going on. He says, cosmology, that's the beginning of the whole thing. Cosmology is waiting on its Darwin. Charles Darwin gave us natural selection and evolution, but we are still waiting for someone to come up with a plausible theory. Currently, there is no believable hypothesis. We're still waiting for someone to come up with something that isn't so extraordinarily improbable that it really falls into the category of impossible. We are still waiting for a theory on why anything exists. Where the things that became the Big Bang, where did they come from? And you believe, if this is what you want to do, that maybe that's true. Maybe there was nothing, and then there was something. Number five, first life emerged from no life with no help. This is not new, and they probably taught you this at school. No doubt you've been asked to study this, and you've charted it out, and you made the, the lines, but um, because most of us are so far away from the problem, it seems simple. The further you are from a problem, the more simple it seems. 
And what could we possibly get further away from than the um, formation of life? This is about as far as you can get away from anything. For those of us who have not chosen to study this area, we are not involved in that conversation. The idea of moving from no life to some life, it seems, well, it's just a little problem, right? But it's not. There is no such thing as simple life. There is just a thing as simpler life. The very first life, no matter how simple it was, was extraordinarily complex. And so if you, if you push God out of the picture, you believe, whether you can explain it or not, and remember, this isn't an argument for or against, you believe that first life emerged from non-life, from lifeless matter, to what Francis Collins calls, this is a great phrase, from lifeless matter to the digital elegance of DNA. Then the last one. Number six, natural selection is responsible for all life after first life. All life forms, all varieties, all species, all subspecies, all the life forms that have come and gone throughout the years. The natural selection is responsible for every single diverse thing that has life from the bottom of the ocean to the land, to way up in the sky. At the end of the book, The God Delusion, Richard Dawkins, honestly, this guy has a brilliant mind. Uh, he's making his case for natural selection. This unguided, purposeless, but somewhat focused, invisible thing, he summarizes. And, and when he does it, it kind of makes you think that he's making fun of his own view. Here's a quote. He's, he's, trying, he's trying to bring some emotion, some excitement, some interest into this kind of really heady theoretical conversation where we're all related to an early life form and that something comes from nothing. Okay? So here's the description from Richard Dawkins himself in context, his words. Think about it. On one planet, and possibly only one planet, in the entire universe, Molecules that make nothing more complicated than a chunk of rock gather themselves together into chunks of rock-sized matter of such staggering complexity that they are capable of running, jumping, swimming, flying, seeing, hearing, capturing, and eating other such animated chunks of complexity, capable in some cases of thinking and feeling and falling in love with other chunks of complex matter. Just the way he chose to write that kind of sounds like he's making fun of his own belief system, but he's not making fun of evolution or natural selection. He's trying to write creatively, so you see the wonder, so you go, wow, that's a big deal. And he finishes, the, the, the statement finishes with like this. We now understand essentially how the trick is done. And he's talking about Charles Darwin there. And that may be true. Just through the invisible force 
that you refer to as natural selection, the most simple form of life, became every form of life that there has ever existed since then. Many life forms that have gone extinct and that we know little about. Now, I need to make very clear my expertise or my lack of expertise, okay? I have a Bible degree, all right? I studied theology, not biology. Truth. But I find it impossible to describe natural selection without it beginning to sound like an invisible personal force with an agenda. Every time I read a description of natural selection, it almost, it's almost impossible to not load the discussion up with things that personify this invisible, relentless, focused, disciplined, you can't put it out of business, you can't stop it, force that resulted in the earliest forms of RNA and then DNA to the point where we have the world as we see it. But perhaps that's how we got here. Now, if you have lost faith in God or you are losing faith in God, here's my hunch. It doesn't have anything to do with your increasing belief in those six tenets of atheism. It's not like you had extraordinary faith in God and then you read one book and then all your faith disappeared overnight. And I bet that your struggle with faith has nothing to do with your profound belief in atheism. You struggle, your struggle with faith has virtually nothing to do with the creation of the universe. Or where did first life come from? It has almost nothing to do with any of that. And as we went through that list, I bet that you, some of you were thinking to yourself, I don't believe that. That's not an accurate assessment of my belief. I have never even thought of that before. I don't think you can really live like that. But I don't see why all that other stuff comes up at all. If I don't, I don't believe that if I don't believe in God, that I have to believe in that either. But the smart guys who are writing the books and cheering you on towards atheism, they all say, oh yes, you do. That's what it means. But the point is, the reason why you're struggling with your faith has nothing to do with that. You may have thought about some of those things. You might talk about some of those things you might bring up some of those things to talk to people like your parents or to people who aren't as smart as you. But there is one root that is not yours. That, that, that's not the root of where your problem comes. And at the end of the day, the reason that you lost your faith, the reason that you're struggling with faith is way more personal than any of this. It's not that atheism has become more appealing, it's because your version of theism has lost its appeal or doesn't seem as if it can be real. And so we're going to look at that next time. It's not that you have this new infatuation with atheism and the teachings of atheism. It's not that you find that more appealing. It's that your current version or the version of Christianity that you were given, that you grew up in, has lost its appeal. 
and at times, compared with what science is telling us, it appears that it couldn't even be real. You've lost or are losing faith in God, not gaining belief in something else. And if you come back next week, in the next few weeks, I'm going to do my best to try and convince you that the God that you quit believing in, the God that you are losing faith in, never existed to begin with. Perhaps you just had the wrong God. Perhaps you have been misled into believing in a God that doesn't actually exist. Today, I just wanted to shine a light, you know, on the only alternative, which may be true. It may be true that every decision that you have ever made, that you felt you had free choice, was not yours at all. It may be true that you have no value, and neither do your children, and neither does your spouse. It's possible that this is all an illusion. It's possible that there is no justice. It's possible that there is no you. But here's what I know about most of us. It might all be true, but we hope not. There's something in you that hopes there is more. There's something in me that hopes that we are something more. But our only hope for that hope is God. Father, I pray that you'll help us to sort out this confusion in our heads. I know today was more complicated. It's harder to put all the pieces together. God, I pray that you would speak to my friends that are here today and that you will give them a sense that they are on a path that has a destination. I pray that you would call them continually to yourself. And as we try to be honest about the world that we live in, we try to be respectful of people who have beliefs that are different than ours. God, I pray that you would bring us to a place of understanding, of confidence, of hope, and of trust. That we don't have to live uncertain. We can grow in our certainty. And in fact, that is our goal. That is your goal, that we would grow in faith with you. Thanks, in Jesus' name, amen.